From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Most of the military's top uniform leaders are in quarantine tonight after the vice commandant of the Coast Guard tested positive for COVID-19. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, Vice Chairman General John Hyten, Army Chief General James McConville, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday, Air Force Chief General Charles Brown, Chief of Space Operations General Jay Raymond, National Guard Bureau Chief General Dan Hokinson, and Cyber Command Commander General Paul Nakasone all had contact with Coast Guard Admiral Charles Ray. The Wall Street Journal reports all of the leaders were at a White House event September 27th. Defense Secretary Mark Esper is officially on board with a Navy fleet of more than 500 ships. He told a virtual event Tuesday the goal of 355 ships by the mid-2030s is a stepping stone to more than 500 by 2045. Defense News reports Esper says the force's top priority should be building its attack submarine fleet from 51 today to between 70 and 80. More on this later in the program. General David Thompson's move from the Air Force to the Space Force is official. He's the new Vice Chief of Space Operations under General Jay Raymond. Defense News reports Thompson says his priorities will be the service's Pentagon headquarters and the Space Warfighting Integration Center. The Navy's new plan would expand its fleet to as many as 530 ships in the coming years, but the force is facing some failures, according to a recent Navy leader. John Kroger is vice president of the Aspen Institute. He's former chief learning officer of the Navy, writing in Defense One. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You list these three big failures impacting the Navy, and they're consistent with what you were writing about when you were still the CLO in the Navy. The first one you write about is the failure to define a compelling vision for the Navy's future. Are you talking philosophical, existential, operational, or what? No, I'm talking um, uh, really strategic. Uh, every administration has an obligation to uh, plan the future Navy, to decide what kind of Navy we're going to need five or 10 years from now, and to put us on that trajectory. And um, over the last four years, we've failed to do that. We're still operating under a force assessment plan that was written during the Obama administration. And however strong that plan might have been, a lot has changed in the last five years. Uh, there's been major changes in technology and uh, the rise of Chinese naval power. And um, in response to that, uh, we simply have not crafted a new compelling vision for the Navy. Uh, a plan was drafted. It was shelved. Uh, a shipbuilding plan was due in Congress over a year ago. It hasn't arrived. Um, and that kind of drift is really dangerous in national security. You write in this piece, to fix these problems, and we'll talk about the other two in turn, the Navy needs to implement a series of fundamental reforms, and one of them that you encourage is a joint Navy-Marine Corps think tank where we're drawing in leaders from all across the landscape, academia and the private sector and so on. Are you encouraged at least that the most recent force structure assessment that I referenced in the introduction is bringing in um, dialogue with CAPE, dialogue with the Hudson Institute and, and others uh, where there is now information coming in from outside the building to uh, try to help them understand how to move forward? Well, I think that's a, a good step. What's um, alarming to me is that the Navy has basically been stripped of the power 
to define what the future Navy looks like. Um, the Navy was working on a plan. Um, it was set aside by Secretary of Defense Esper uh, because of the perception that it was based on, on poor assumptions and, and weak analysis. Um, that just shows that something has gone badly wrong when the Navy is no longer allowed to plan the Navy's future. It shows to me that we need to have a stronger strategic capability in the Department of the Navy to help us define what kind of Navy we need and draw on the experts who are actually in the Navy to figure out what that is. The second failure that you write about is the failure to reform what you call a badly broken ship design and acquisition system. Uh, I, and you reference the Ford, the Zumwalt, the LCS. Ford construction, I note, began in 2005. Zumwalt construction began in 2009. The DD, uh, DDG 1000 launched in 2013. Uh, the first LCS was commissioned in 2008. These are long-standing design and acquisition problems, John. How long should it take to turn that around? You know, the, the simple matter is these problems have been longstanding, and yet um, over the last four years under this administration, we, we haven't made any fundamental changes to our shipbuilding planning and acquisition process. Um, obviously, the last three major shipbuilding programs, which you referenced, have been widely criticized. Uh, you know, the Zumwalt program, for example, was canceled. Uh, we didn't build 30 ships, we built three, and they were extraordinarily expensive. And we canceled them because the ships simply don't achieve any strategic mission for our country. Uh, those kind of failures should create a dialogue for major reform, and we haven't seen anything like that. I was somewhat stunned to see the ranking members uh, of both parties in the Senate Armed Services Committee call for fundamental reform and no real response from the Navy. Uh, we really need to bring together the best minds that we've got, look at those past failures that, that go back, um, you, know, you know, over the last two decades and develop a new game plan for how we're going to develop large numbers of cost-effective, strategically valuable ships. I want to come back to the potential solution if we have time, but I do want to get to your third uh, failure. That's the failure to build a diverse, high-performing leadership team. Feeding that leadership team requires a bench. Are you encouraged by the development that all the branches seem to be taking, which is to take pictures and take names off of promotion boards in order to try to eliminate bias and build that more diverse bench? Well, I think that everyone is taking steps. Um, they're probably overdue, at, but they're to be encouraged. What worries me most, though, is the political leadership um, uh, in the Department of Defense. If you look at the branches of the services and the secretaries, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, uh, the department is run overwhelmingly by white men, and we're turning away, uh, uh, turning our backs on the great strength and diversity of the country. We have national security experts uh, of both genders. Uh, we have national security experts um, across the spectrum of race and ethnicity. And we really need to draw on all the strength of America in order to develop a great leadership team. We have about 30 seconds left. Back to the acquisition issue. What would you like to see change in, for example, the frigate acquisition to give you an indication that things are headed in a different direction? I think two things are really important. One is we have to start being more honest about costs. Um, we sent cost estimates up to Congress. Congress immediately replied that the cost estimates seem way uh, under budget for what it will actually take based on the cost of the ships that have been constructed elsewhere. Um, so for me, that indicates once again that we're sort of playing with the budget. Um, we're um, going to wind up with massive cost of runs. More important, I think, is that we need to be more sophisticated about, about 
the risk that comes from incorporating multiple technologies that haven't been tried into our into our vessels. Um, the Ford is an interesting example, right? We um, decide to incorporate many brand new technologies into the ship, and we assume that they will all come to fruition on time, on schedule, on cost. That's not how technology works. And so, you know, we need to follow the recommendations that are coming from Congress to develop a much more sophisticated technology risk assessment process when we're designing the vessels that we've got. John Kroger, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. I really appreciate being here. Up next, a new Navy fleet plan larger than anything you've seen before. Straight ahead on Government Matters, building up the fleet to take on near-peer competitors. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, is endorsing a Navy fleet of more than 500 ships. Esper says that fleet will be, quote, more lethal, survivable, adaptable, sustainable, and modern. Seth Cropsey is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy. He's part of the team at Hudson that participated in the future Navy force study. Seth, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What is your vision compared to the secretary's vision for getting into the 500s inventory-wise? I think the, uh, the important point here is that uh, there is a shared vision, shared understanding that, a, uh, that the fleet of the future needs to be larger, uh, made up of um, smaller vessels uh, that can address the, um, the question of, uh, of global distribution, which is to say they can be where they're needed, forward deployed, um, and can combine um, the ability to conduct defensive plus, plus offensive operations in a way that will um, that will overcome uh, the threats that are rising from um, fear competitors. So um, I, on that point, I think that the that Secretary Esper and, uh, and Hudson's report uh, go together quite well. Uh, you and others have coached me up over the years that the number is not the only important issue. The composition is also important. One of the things Secretary Esper said uh, was uh, Force's top priority should be building its attack sub-fleet from 51 today to between 70 and 80. Where does that comport with what you and your team recommend? Uh, we also recommend uh, an increase in the number of submarines. Uh, so long as they remain undetectable or virtually undetectable or hard to detect, uh, they are uh, valuable uh, instruments for projecting power, uh, for um, destroying enemy shipping, uh, for conducting offensive operations, um, and uh, and not only manned submarines but uh, unmanned underwater vehicles as well. Uh, so um, I I think that the, obviously the the uh, the need for submarines is growing and will continue to grow in the future, especially as China builds more and more of them. 
As I read the work, the reports on the work of the Future Navy Force Study, um, my main takeaway was I don't see anyone proposing any kinds of technologies that don't already exist. This strikes me as more of a shipbuilding exercise uh, and, and figuring out how to pay for it than a huge R&D exercise. Am I missing anything, Seth? I think the, the, um, the issue that will, uh, that will, will be important here is the design of the smaller, um, smaller combatants uh, from surface to subsurface, um, and also their command and control and their use, uh, their collective use, for example, uh, unmanned um, subsurface vehicles uh, by um, their connection with artificial intelligence. And there, um, you know, I think the platform is probably going to be less important than the ability to uh, use a whole, a whole raft of platforms, a whole series of platforms, in a coordinated and effective offensive way. But given um, what we... That's not... Yeah, go I'm ahead. I'm sorry. No, finish your thought, please. I apologize. Yeah, no, no that's right. Uh, um, so, uh, as most of us know, it uh, it often takes the Navy, usually takes Navy... Um, quite a while to design ships. Uh, um, and a smaller surface combatant is not likely to be an exception to that. So there are very real questions about, uh, although there are not problems with smaller ships, but designing them, with building smaller ships, but designing them uh, could well be an issue. Uh, so. We have to wait and see, and there are other options. We have about a minute left, Seth. One of the reasons that I thought that that, that platform concept was so important was the technology and putting the technology onto the platform seemed, from my amateur perspective, to be what went wrong with the Ford Carrier and with the LCS program. Well, to say it's been a problem is kind of an understatement. Um, but, I, but I think it's important also to uh keep in mind that uh that this is all linked to the necessity of uh forward-based forces and being able to conduct operations thousands and thousands of miles from our coastline and that is uh that cannot be separated from strategy we're talking about uh force structure here and force structure without strategy um, is sort of like a pedestal without a statue. So um, the, it's good that um, there seems to be motion in the direction of uh, a more widely distributed, larger uh, fleet compo composed of um, additional vessels that are smaller and more lethal. Uh, but that does not answer the question about what do you do with that? How exactly do you do you use that? And what are the strategic goals of such a force? Um, so I, I just don't want to leave the impression that the subject is now done. Over. Finished. We, it's not. we will continue that conversation in the future, Seth. Thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it.
It's my pleasure. Good to see you again. Up next, unfinished business and a Congress focused on November. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what Congress will need to tackle when it gets back to work and what that means for the defense industry. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Congress has a big stack of business to take care of and not much work time to do it. It has a long list of undone issues that the defense industrial base still has to wrestle with. Kay Amatori is director of legislative policy at the National Defense Industrial Association. Kay, welcome. It's good to see you again. Number one, I imagine, is the CR that runs through December 11th. Since it funds agencies, what is undone about it for the defense industrial base? Well, for one, is 3610 was authorized under it to extend out to December 11th, but it still doesn't have funding. The CARES Act authorized it, but did not fund it. So we're still waiting for funding for that. It additionally had for um, Columbia class subs, but Space Force still goes unfunded. That's still falling under the Air Force's budget. So that's something that that puts them on hold. And this, like, all but one of the last 11 years, we've started under a continuing resolution. While we're grateful to not have a government shutdown and we appreciate Congress getting this continuing resolution, um, it, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. It's something that our adversaries don't have to deal with. And so it puts us in a bad place to start out. And there's still the uncertainty going into next year as we're dealing with COVID and the pandemic continues. Is there any certainty for vendors since Congress has essentially said, we'd like to extend the money from the CARES Act through December 11th, but we don't actually have the cash to give you. That doesn't really help the companies too much at this point, does it? It doesn't. We've had a number of companies that we've spoken with. We know that um, some Maryland and Virginia senators had pushed for an extension out into uh, December of 2021 for Section 3610. But as of right now, that isn't attached to anything. It's not in the NDAA. We were hopeful that it would be attached to a COVID bill. But since that is, hasn't moved anywhere as of right now, um, it, leaves, it leaves companies not knowing what to do. We are hopeful that maybe some of the Section 4003 money that was under the CARES Act that has gone largely unused could be used both for 3610 and then also for SBIR, um, so small business innovation. Uh, that's that's sort of a, a push that we're, we're hoping can happen. Is this theoretical right now, Kaya, or are you starting to hear instances, anecdotal or, or in quantity, from either your members or the subs that they deal with, that this is really starting to have an impact, that this money's not flowing, that some of these small companies may not be ready when, when the larger companies or the Pentagon directly needs them. This is particularly difficult for service-based companies, um, those that were not able to begin teleworking as the pandemic began. Um, as many as possible have pivoted to a telework schedule, but if you're working in a SCIF with classified information and you have to be on site at a federal facility, you, you have to be there and they're having to essentially eat the cost right now um, if they're either working a 50-50 split shift because of social distancing. So it is something that is negatively impacting companies and it's the uncertainty of whether or not they'll ever see that money uh, 
Secretary Lord has said at least $11 billion is going to be needed for it. Um, we truly appreciate Secretary Lord and her team have been you know, supportive with pushing this out and letting Congress know that this is a big concern for our companies. Um, but as of right now, we've we've heard from some companies. It's it's really if it was one thing alone um, that they were dealing with, but you have you know 3610 issues with them being able to access it. We have Section 889 issues from the FY19 NDA where that rule has gone into effect, and then you have CMMC coming down with cybersecurity, and so it's the culmination of all of these different things that is really making it so difficult for all of these companies. The other big piece of business that affects the defense community is the National Defense Authorization Act. What do we know, if anything, about the status of the Senate and its ability to continue to negotiate in conference with the House based on the fact that Senator McConnell has said because of the COVID situation, he's at least shutting down votes for the next two weeks. Does, is that having an impact on the way that the negotiation is happening, or do we even know, Kaya? You know, we're, we're hearing mixed things. We understand that they are conferencing. Um, you know, a lot of that can be done virtually. So they have been going through, um, we're understanding they're going through the NDAA. They're looking at the different provisions, um, sort of going through the easier ones to come to agreement on first. Um, but as far as when that will actually happen, we don't foresee that happening before the election for sure. Um, but how soon we can get that out the door and get the authorizations that we so desperately need for our DOD, for our warfighters, for our industry um, remains to be seen right now. Kaya, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. To stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.